0: Uh, Please open your Bible up to Exodus chapter 6. If you're using the uh, church Bible, that's going to be on page 57. Exodus chapter 6. Just to remember what happened last week, where we're at in the story, Moses has been sent to announce God's coming deliverance of God's people uh, from slavery in Egypt. Moses' first announcement to Israel is well-received, and when they hear that God has... uh, They receive that announcement with joy and worshiping God, but Pharaoh, upon hearing this, scoffs, and in fact, doubles down and makes Israel's work even harder. Their slavery becomes even more difficult. Israel then despairs. Moses himself turns to God in lament, "'Lord, why have you done this harm to this people? Why did you even send me? I spoke to Pharaoh in your name, but he has done this people harm.'" And you have not delivered your people at all. That's where we left off last week, in the pits of despair. Moses is desperate. He needs a renewed vision of the Lord. And so we're going to pick up at Exodus 6, verse 1, with God's answer to Moses, which is a reminder of who the Lord is. We're going to read a longer section all the way through chapter 7, verse 7. And just to give you a rough outline for what we're going through here, God speaks to Moses. He tells Moses to go talk to Israel, then he tells Moses to go talk to Pharaoh. Moses again says, I'm not a great speaker. And then there's a weird break where it tells us all of Moses' and Aaron's genealogy. It goes back to uh, uh, their forefathers, their ancestors, hundreds of years earlier, and then it picks up the story again. And the genealogy is a little bit like, do you remember, um, Older folks, when you restart a computer and then the DOS prompt would go through and it kind of gets you back to where you're at, that's a little bit what the genealogy is doing. It's like restarting. Okay, we'll go back to the beginning, get back up to present day. It's, it's a little bit of a pause there. Uh, younger kids, if you watch Jurassic Park, you can see that happen. Um, it's, I know it's antiquated. You don't know what I'm talking about. But um, anyways, uh, that's the rough outline of what's happening. So then after the genealogy, it resumes with this instruction to go to Pharaoh. Here now the reading of God's word. Beginning in Exodus 6, verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groanings of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. And I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I will bring you into the land I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses thus spoke to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me, for I am of uncircumcised lips? But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. These are the heads of their father's houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanak, Palu. Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon, Yemuel, Yamin, Ohad, Yaqin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations. Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimei, by their clans. The sons of Kohath, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel, the years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi, these are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Izhar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri, the sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elzaphon and Sithri. Aaron took his wife, Elishabah, the daughter of Aminadab, the sister of Nashon, and she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar. The sons of Korah, Asir, Elkanah, and Abiasaph. These are the clans of the Korahites. Eliezer, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phineas. These are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their host. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now, Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. This is God's Word. You Uh, you might recall if you were here last week when Moses initially announces that God is going to deliver his people, rather, the Lord is going to deliver his people, Pharaoh responds sarcastically. Who is this God called Lord that I should listen to his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, therefore I sh- will not let Israel go. Okay, that's the basic question that Pharaoh for- Who is Lord? I don't know anything about him. Why should I listen to him? God's response then in this chapter, you want to know who I am? Let me tell you. And then the opening section of this chapter, uh, chapter 6, reads a bit like a resume. God describes his character. This is the kind of God I am. This is who I am. And that phrase, I am the Lord, is repeated like a drumbeat at least a half dozen times through what we've just read. I am the Lord. This is my character. I am the Lord. These are the sorts of things I do this chapter, it's teaching us. This is what it means to say God is Lord. Now, warning, this is going to be a little bit different sermon today. Uh, kids, you're out of school, so I'm, I'm going a little hard on you. There's going to be six points, so it's a little bit longer, uh, but it will be quick points, okay? Hopefully. Uh, that's that's the plan. Um, so six points, because we see six different things that This chapter, this initial speech in verses 2 through 8, show us about what the Lord is like. It tells us that the Lord is a God who reveals himself, a God who keeps his word, a God who identifies with our woes, a God who sets free, a God who brings near, and a God who leads home. Okay, so it shows us six different things about what it means to say that the Lord is God. First, The Lord is a God who reveals himself. He's a God who reveals himself. Pharaoh says he's never heard of God, but we see that God makes himself known in a variety of ways. First, this whole passage is about God speaking to Moses. He talks to Moses. Moses is in despair. He isn't up to the task. He's ready to call it quits. And we see here something that is a pattern throughout Moses' life. When he faces a difficult situation, he's ready to quit. He doesn't get sent off to a leadership seminar to learn how to lead Israel better. Okay? He doesn't go down to Barnes & Noble and get a self-help book, 10 Tricks for Doing Better, Public Speaking to Pharaohs, that sort of thing. Um, what does he do when he faces these moments of crisis? He has a renewed vision of God. God reveals his character, his nature, to Moses more clearly. And in encountering God afresh... Moses is refreshed and encouraged and goes out to the task. This is what happens here. It happens at the burning bush. It happens here. It's going to happen after the golden calf in Exodus 34 when he says, I want to see your face. Indeed, this is what we all need. Uh, Sometimes it can seem abstract to talk about God's nature, and yet it's the most practical thing in the world. God speaks to us through the preaching of his word, and as we come to know God better... And to understand his character, it is to renew us, to refresh us, to encourage us, to empower us to do his work. So God speaks to Moses, but this is not the first time he's spoken. In 6.2, God says, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not yet make myself known. Okay, so God said, not only am I speaking to you now, I've been speaking to your ancestors for generations. Uh, this name, God Almighty, El Shaddai, uh, in Genesis, it's used a half dozen times, and in those contexts, it generally refers to God's sufficiency. He says, you don't have children, you're barren. I am God Almighty, I can provide for you. You don't have a land, I can give you a land. I'm sufficient. But now God tells Moses a new aspect of his character is being revealed. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob didn't understand what it meant that God was Lord. But now in the Exodus, God reveals himself not only as the God who is sufficient, but as the Lord God who saves, who brings freedom, who sets free, who delivers his people from their bondage through public acts that all nations see. In verse 6, God tells Moses, Israel too needs to hear God's word. God reveals himself. He speaks not only to Moses, but also to his people. God reveals himself to Israel through his word preached by Moses. It's one of the fundamental acts of Christian faith, is that we together assemble under God's word, and as it is preached, we hear God speak to us. But we see in verse 9 that they do not listen because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. External conditions can keep us from listening to God's Word. So Israel must be freed from their harsh slavery and then when they're brought to Mount Sinai they're ready to hear God's Word again to listen to it. And likewise in our own day many people need help with their external circumstances before they are in a place where they can listen to God's Word. And so historically in the church mercy ministry and proclaiming the good news go hand in hand as two works that the church does to our larger community. Finally, God also reveals himself to the Egyptians. God tells Moses to speak to Pharaoh. Think about that for a minute. Pharaoh sets himself up as God's enemy, and yet God says, nevertheless, I want you to speak to him, to tell him what I'm like. But then God warns Moses, it's not gonna be easy. I'm gonna stiffen his heart so he won't listen. Why? So that I can work my mighty acts of judgment against Pharaoh, who claims to be a God, and by that, the Egyptians, will know that I am Lord. We're actually going to see as we work through the narrative of the 10 plagues or 10 signs, there's this difference that eventually about plague 7 or 8, the Egyptians start saying, Pharaoh, back down. We're going to be destroyed. And then when Israel leads, le- leaves Egypt, it says a mixed multitude goes up with them. Okay, some of the Egyptians see that the Lord is God and they say, we're going with him, not staying here with Pharaoh. The Lord continues to be a God who reveals Himself. In Hebrews 1, we read, At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. So The first thing it means that the Lord is God is that He reveals Himself. Now, I promise, that's the longest of the six points. So if you're watching your watch, don't worry, okay. Second, the Lord is a God who keeps His word. He's a God who keeps His word. In 6.4, God tells Moses, not only did I reveal myself to Abraham, but I also established my covenant with your ancestors to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. God has bound himself to Israel's ancestors in a covenant relationship. It's like a promissory agreement. God told Abraham, you walk before me, live before me in my presence, and I will multiply you greatly and give you this land. At the end of Exodus 2, when Israel cried out for rescue from their slavery, the narrator told us God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now in Exodus, the Lord is on the move because he keeps his word. He's given his covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he's going to be faithful to it. God's free to make a covenant with whom he pleases. And indeed, in Deuteronomy 7, Moses reminds Israel, it's not because you are more in number or the most righteous or the best people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. Indeed, you are the fewest of all people, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers that the Lord brought you out of Egypt with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. The faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love to those who love Him. Uh, the, it's, it seems circular. The Lord sets His love on you and chose you because He loves you. It, it, it seems circular, uh, but any love that is, uh, you know, true love really is circular in this sense. Love that is ultimately at the bottom, grounded on a specific reason, is utilitarian. Uh, what do I mean? if you tell your significant other, I love you because you cooked dinner for me, okay, you do love the significant other and they express that and you love that they cooked dinner, that's fine. But if that's at the ground basic level, that's why you love them, what you really love is having a hot dinner. It's not the other person. Okay, there's something, uh, an impenetrable depth to love, that I love you because I love you. And God says that's what it's like with Israel. I love you because I love you. And so I'm, giving you my covenant, I'm binding myself to you and I will keep my word. Once the Lord has set his love on his people and given them his covenant, he is bound to them for all time. The Lord is a God who keeps his word. And so we sing in the hymn, How firm a foundation you saints of the Lord is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say? God has given us his promises and he keeps his word. Third, the Lord is a God who identifies with our woe. He's a God who identifies with our woe. See verse 5. He says, I gave my covenant to your ancestors. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I remembered my covenant. At the end of chapter 2, the Lord heard the cry of the people of Israel for rescue from slavery. And the final verse says, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. He identified with their woe. Again, at the end of chapter 4, when Moses comes to speak to the people of Israel, we read, the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Exodus is telling us something fundamental about God's character. Not only... Is the Lord on the move because he keeps his word, but also because he is a God who is compassionate, who uh, identifies with our woes. He hears the cry of the oppressed. He sees those in affliction, and he comes alongside us in our woe and identifies with us. And the opening of Exodus then lays out these parallel reasons why the Lord is delivering Israel. On the one hand, because he gave his covenant. On the other hand, because he has heard their cries and seen their need. Covenant and compassion are both motives for the Exodus. Uh, When we come to Exodus 34, after the golden calf, God will again appear to Moses and he proclaims to Moses, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands. God's compassion is fundamental to his character. So who is the Lord? The Lord is a God who is not far off but who is compassionate, who identifies with our woe. The Lord is a God who comes alongside us in the midst of our pain and suffering and trouble, who hears those who cry out. After the Exodus, people will continue to cry out for rescue, rescue from slavery to death, to sin, to sorrow. God again and again hears the cries of his people and moves to help. And indeed, there is no limit to how far the Lord, the God of the Exodus, will go to identify with our woe. So Hebrews 2 says, Since we are flesh and blood, you and I, the Lord himself in Christ Jesus likewise partook of the same thing, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. There is no limit to the extent God will go to identify with us in our woes. He'll take on flesh and blood so he can experience firsthand the pain and suffering we have and to deliver us from lifelong slavery to death. The Lord is a compassionate God who identifies with our woe. Fourth, the Lord is a God who sets free. He's a God who sets free. This is central to the message that God wants Moses to tell Israel. He says, I have, I, I'm going to keep my word, and I, I, I see you, and I identify with you in your woe, and so what am I going to do about it? I'm going to set you free. Exodus describes the central act of salvation in the whole Old Testament. It's the model for what God's salvation looks like. Okay, Indeed, the Exodus even shapes how the gospel writers talk about Jesus' work of salvation. It's like this, this model or paradigm for what salvation looks like. You see there in verse 6, he, God tells Moses, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. What does that mean? Who is the Lord? I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. Okay, those three clauses, they're all kind of parallel to each other there, but unpacking what it means that the Lord sets free. He'll bring the people out from under their burdens. The immediate cause of their woe will be removed, but he will also deliver his people from slavery to Egypt. Okay, those who claim power over God's people will be put away. Uh, We see then kind of a positive and negative side here. Positively, Israel's burdens will be removed. Negatively, Egypt will be judged, especially the Pharaoh will be judged for his false claims over God's people. And then third, the Lord will redeem with an outstretched arm. The idea that the Lord redeems his people is central to the whole book of Exodus. Uh, Apart from referring to God's work, this idea of redeeming refers to a redeeming relative who would come along and pay for someone who had become an indentured servant and you'd pay for them to be free. Or redeeming a piece of property by paying an equivalent amount. And those ideas are packed in here. At the end of chapter 4, God told Moses to warn Pharaoh that Israel is his firstborn son. And now the Lord is telling Israel, don't worry, I will redeem you. I'll play the role of a close relative who buys you out of your debt, who frees you from slavery. Uh, The best illustration I know of this idea of redeeming is from, this was my favorite children's book when I was young, and my parents got me a copy when I think Ezra was born, Monkey. There's no words to it, but it tells the story of this young guy uh, who takes his monkey on a bike ride with his mom, And if I marked the right pages, uh, it starts raining, so they take off. The monkey gets left. I won't read the whole story to you, but through a variety of circumstances, he gets taken in by some rats and then some uh, hedgehogs. And then a magpie drops him in the water in this lake. And he sits here with, I guess this is a perch or something. And then this uh, gentleman comes along and fishes him out of the water. And it turns out that he runs a stuffed animal repair center. So he brings him in. And he fixes him all up, and uh, if you can, after service you can see, but he's sitting in a little hospital bed here in the repair center. But then what happens is it's, it's snowing, so it's the next season, and this little boy is on the sled along with his mom, and he sees his monkey in the window, and he goes in and buys the monkey back. Okay, that's redeeming. And that's a picture of what happens at Exodus. God's people are already his. He made them. He made a covenant with them but then they become enslaved and God comes along and he buys them back. He owns them twice over, just like this boy owns the monkey twice over. That's the idea of redeeming. God is our creator and our redeemer. And so we belong to him twice over. Again, the Lord's character as a God who sets free is consistent and only revealed further in the work of Christ Jesus. The Lord again and again Continually, through the work of Christ, brings his people out from under his bur- their burdens, delivers them from slavery, and redeems them. And so, friends, if you are burdened this morning, you are weighed down with shame or anxiety or self doubt, if you bear burdens, Christ is the Lord who brings his people out from under their burdens. He says, Come to me, my youth, and my burden is light. Are you enslaved? Do you know that your life is controlled by patterns of behavior that are destructive, that lead to death? Do you feel the bonds of sin upon you? Christ is the Lord of the Exodus who delivers from bondage. In Christ, the Lord, the God of the Exodus, redeems his people by giving his own life to buy us back. Fifth, the Lord is a God who brings close. He's a God who brings close. In verse 6, God says he will do three things to set his people free. And then in verse 7, it continues. Not only will I set you free and redeem you, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. This is, uh, it's almost marriage language. Okay. At a wedding, what do you say? Do you take them to be your bride? Do you take them to be your husband? That's what God's saying here. I will take you to be my people, and I will give myself to be your God. The book of Exodus pushes back on modern stories about freedom. How do we think about freedom? We say we're free when no one tells us what to do. Right? Isn't that freedom? out of my life, my parents get out of my life, whoever else gets out of my life and lets me live the way I want to live, that's where true freedom is. Chasing after my own desires with no constraint. But what does Exodus say true freedom is? It's not that God brings Israel out in the wilderness and says, do whatever you want now. True freedom is being brought into God's presence, being brought close to God. True freedom is about serving the right master. Do you serve Pharaoh, this false god who claims to be king, but is a tyrant and destroys your life? Or do you serve the life-giving God who says, I will redeem you, I will give myself for your freedom? True freedom depends on who you serve. Friends, there's no such thing as n- not serving anyone. Okay? If you don't serve anyone else, you're serving yourself. You're chasing your own desires, you're letting them be king in your life. And any desire that we chase, if we make it our ultimate good, no matter how good of a gift it is of God, it becomes a tyrant if we put it in God's place. True freedom is found only in serving God. Even the best things in life, you know, God's good gift of wine, if that becomes your ultimate desire that you chase, it becomes destructive. Even the greatest gifts like running can become destructive. If that's your ultimate thing, (laughs) whatever it is, however good it is, if you make family the ultimate thing, it becomes tyrannical. That's how parents become overbearing. That's how kids become uh, 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 disappointed in their parents. You're always serving something. True freedom comes when we serve the true God who brings close his people. Says, you will be my people, my possession." Uh, This applies to each individual who comes out of Egypt in the Exodus, but do you see what God's doing here? He's not just rescuing individuals, but he's shaping a people, a, a nation, a group, a culture that reflects him in the midst of the larger world. And that pattern again continues today. In the work of Christ, the Lord continues to set individuals free, to relieve their burdens, to redeem them. But the Lord's work is still to make a people for his own. Why Christians assemble together on Sundays to be shaped as a common people as the Lord brings us close. Uh, As I already mentioned, at the end of uh, Exodus 12, when the people come out of the land, we're told that it's a mixed multitude. It's Israelites, but a bunch of others who say, this is the way to go. This is the God who brings freedom. Through the work of Christ Jesus, the Lord of the Exodus continues that work. A global mixed multitude is being incorporated into God's people. It's not to the exclusion of God's firstborn Israel, but rather we're being adopted into God's family. Not only does the Lord claim a people for his own, but he offers himself to them. He says, I will be your God. Here, you have my first name, the Lord. Talk to me personally. The Lord is a God who sets free and then brings us into close, intimate, reciprocal relationship. Sixth and finally, the Lord is a god who leads us home. He's a God who leads us home. Do you see verse 8? Not only will they be set free, not only will they be bound to God in this close intimate, intimate relationship, but in verse 8 he says, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Not only will the Lord shape Israel into a people with a common identity and give himself to be their God, but he will also give Israel a homeland. A place of their own where they can work not for the Pharaoh's benefit, but for their own benefit. So redemption has implications for the land, for creation as well. God's basic intention is to be with his people in the place he has given them. Friends, isn't this what we all need? What we deepest desire is a place that we feel at home. Do you ever feel alienated in the world, displaced? This is what Tolkien talks about when the elves want to go to the Grey Haven. As good as the world is, they sense something's not right. And I think many of us sense that, uh, all of us from time to time. But the Bible tells us the story is going somewhere. The Lord of the Exodus is still the God yesterday, today, and forever. And the Lord remains a God who leads home. And so how does the Bible end? It ends with this picture of what is to come. A new heavens and a new earth. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Behold, I am making all things new. The Lord God of the Exodus brings out of slavery a people for himself. He binds himself to them, draws them close, but then he leads his people home to a place where God himself dwells in their midst. That's the end goal that we're pointed towards the end of all things, when God renews the heavens and the earth and dwells with his people as their God. How's that possible? How can the holy God live in the midst of his people? Because the Lord God of the Exodus identified with our woes in Christ Jesus, gave his own life to redeem us, to put all things right, through Christ Jesus is leading us to himself, drawing us close to himself, And so through Christ Jesus can lead us home. One day all who trust in Christ will dwell with God in a renewed heavens and a renewed earth. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have revealed yourself as the Lord who saves, as the Lord who speaks and keeps his word as the Lord who comes alongside us in our, uh, our worst days, in our woe, in our despair, in our trouble, you hear our cries when we are afflicted. But you don't just identify with us. It's not just empathy. You do something about it. You set us free. Lord, some today feel the weight of burdens, shame, anxiety, uh, questions about their own self-worth. Free them from their burdens. Let them know your burden, which is light, the freedom of serving you. Others of us, Lord, we are in bondage. We are enslaved to patterns that lead to death. Break those patterns in our life. Set us free that we might worship you as we ought to. Lord, there are some here today who have not yet been redeemed. Their trust is not yet in Christ Jesus. Let them know you personally as the God of the Exodus, the God of of Christ Jesus, the God who redeems. By your Holy Spirit, speak your love to the life of each person here today. And then, Lord, stir us up with hope that you will indeed lead us home. One day you will dwell with us. Amen.